Well, what's up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is Nate Thurston. Good morning, Liberty. I am the co-host, and guess what? Charlie is not here for this interview today. So today, I've got Jack Salmon, who's a contributor with Young Voices and a research assistant at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His research focuses on the economy, the federal budget, higher education, economic growth, things like that. So we're going to talk about a little bit of Fed policy and how that affects the fiscal policy. And make sure you check out all of Jack's links in the show notes. Let's get on into the interview. Jack, how are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you, Nate. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Uh, we appreciate you coming on today. Well, we just saw the Fed hike the rates again yesterday by 75 basis points, and you just had an article and the National Review talking about, uh, well, the title of it is How a Decade of Low Interest Rates Fuel Reckless Government Spending. So a lot of different directions we can go on this. The basic idea is that we're not going to be able to keep these rates down at zero forever. I don't think that's a great idea. How would you describe the situation we're in right now? We're pushing the rates up. I think we're getting close to the 4%, which is kind of where I think it should be all the time. What's your general thesis on the matter? Sure. So, so my my take on this subject is is typically of, of fiscal interest. So I'm looking at the government spending and debt aspect. But in terms of monetary policy, I think the Fed has so far been making the right moves. Um, I believe they acted late, in my opinion. Uh, we, we, we were saying earlier on in 2021 that inflation is already elevated and persistent, that we should be raising rates as early as September last year. So I think they acted late, but I think they're heading in the right direction now. It looks as though they're set to hit about five percent by early next year, and then hold rates there for the long for the long run until until inflation starts to come back down to target. So it looks like they're moving in the right direction, but it's a little too little, too late. Yeah, it definitely seems like uh, the inflation wasn't quite as transitory as they thought it was going to be. So they acted a little bit too late. A lot of people think they're going too far right now. I, I'm not really in that camp at all. I think they have much further to go. But, you know, you're talking about fiscal policy, and it seems like we've just been able to spend whatever we wanted with, with almost no limit. We hear a lot of talk uh, about things like modern monetary theory. Uh, we can just print as much money as we want. Um, how did the Fed, uh, keeping these rates so low for so long, uh, I think we just went through a 15-year period of having these really low rates how did that affect the growth of our government over that period of time? Fed definitely played a significant role in inflating financial bubbles during during the past decade or more. Really, after the great financial crisis, the prevailing theory among economists on, on fiscal and monetary policies was that we could spend into the foreseeable future, even with huge deficits, so long as interest rates remained below the growth rate of the economy which for most years during that period, they were. But that completely ignored the existence of the budget deficit, which, as we now know, is, is typically about 5% of GDP in good times and can be as high as 15% of GDP when we have a, an economic crisis like when we had in, in 2020. So those, those theories were always flawed from the get-go. Uh, they were promoted by some, some famous economists. Uh, I, I mentioned in the piece Olivier Blanchard, the French economist, uh, published a paper in 2019 that was quite influential on this. And he said that, that as long as interest rates remained below the growth rate of the economy, we could keep spending into the foreseeable future. And then a year later, as the, as the pandemic ensued, 
uh, Larry Summers and and Jason Thurman published a paper that was quite along similar lines in terms of these theories, where they said that interest rates have been low, lower than growth growth rates for the past decade, and we anticipate that they'll stay low and below growth rates at least for the next ten years. Or it only took one year for that theory to be flipped on its head, and now we're really starting to see pressure on the fiscal budget because of those interest rate spikes. So, do these people uh, like uh, like Furman and Summers? They really think that we're not going to go through a period where we'll need higher rates. They think we're we'll just stay in that period where we can keep them low forever. No planning for the future at all. I think they they likely assumed that during crises uh, there may be short uh, small changes in interest rates stri- driven by the Federal Reserve, um, like we saw around the Great Financial Crisis in the years after when Fed. Start, when the Fed started tightening its policy, we, ha- we had the taper tantrum. And so rates only went up to a, a little more than 2%. So I, I assume that's what they anticipated be, being, the, being the norm is anywhere between zero and 2%. I don't think they anticipated seeing inflation at levels not seen since the 1970s. And so they didn't anticipate needing those, those rate hikes. But we shouldn't, the, the lesson for economists is that they shouldn't always base their theories on on historical trends people always look at what's been happening for the past 20 or 30 years and say well but i i suppose the future will look the same as the past and things will be golden and there'll be no inflation those are always very risky and very dangerous assumptions to make especially when you have a debt ratio that's the same size as the economy and is now forecast to grow to 185 percent in the coming 30 years yeah, that's one thing I wanted to ask about. How dangerous is this whole interest on the debt scenario? I mean, we we keep piling it on, we keep growing the debt, and now we got interest rates going up. Uh, it seems like we're heading for uh, a bad period here. I think the next twelve months to two or three years are going to be particularly tough, and I don't think most policymakers and economists have have really let, let that sink in yet. In August of this year, just to give an idea, I follow the Treasury data in terms of uh, what the government spends on different aspects of the budget on a monthly basis. And in August of this year, it was the first time that I've seen in in budgetary history, at least since World War II, that interest payments on the debt, that's the interest that the government's paying on on its total stock of debt, the payments that month actually exceeded total military spending for that month, which is the first time that's happened that I've ever seen. And so the expenses on our debt are already exceeding our defense budget. They're likely to exceed Medicaid, total Medicaid spending in the coming months. We're looking at 2%, 3% up of GDP just on interest payments. And that also has negative ramifications on the private sector because capital gets crowded out. If investors are buying debt, then they're not they're not investing in, in companies, in growth, in investment, in capital. So that starts to hurt the growth rate. So we're going to have low growth, high inflation, high interest rates, and a potential fiscal crisis. Well, so when you hear things like that, it, it sounds catastrophic. It sounds like doomsday scenario. And you, you see a lot of people posting about that. The interest on the, the payments are going to be uh, more than, like you said, the military spending. And we start talking about, you know, Medicare and Social Security and all the things that we have to pay for. And then we got this massive chunk going to interest on the debt. And that just keeps piling on. What do you do to to get out of that? Are they going to find a way to weasel their way out? 
or is there going to be a, for lack of better terms, a come to Jesus moment here on the on the debt? Yeah, that's that, that's a good question. It, it, it's sort of an open question, but the policy thus far, for, 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 for particularly for the, the forthcoming um, Social Security and Medicare trust fund crisis that's going to hit us in about ten years, give give or take a couple of years, the the policy that this far has been to do nothing and to cut benefits by twenty five thirty percent when the time comes, which is very convenient for politicians, particularly elderly politicians who probably won't be around at that time, or at least won't be in power when this happens. And so the, the policy for, for decades has been just, just to ignore it and, uh, and wait for it to actually happen. I try to be glass half full with this current situation of spiking interest rates and inflation in believing that it might actually force policymakers' hands into actually coming together and finding some bipartisan consensus on, on how to fix the issue, um, on how to prevent uh, these huge cuts to Social Security benefits. It, it's, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful, especially if we're going into a recession in the next 12 months, which looks increasingly likely. Um, this is really what happened when the Fed hiked rates in the 80s to tackle inflation and the, the financing cost of paying debt was so high in the 80s that by the 90s, it really forced both sides to come together. And they actually made reductions in spending. Um, they deregulated. We had significantly higher growth rates. And, and by the end of the 90s, we had a budget surplus. So I tried to be glass half full and believe that we can do that again. But the debt is so much larger now that it, it's really difficult not to be doom and gloom. Um, when we were hiking interest rates in in the 80s, our debt was about 25% of GDP. And it was painful. It, it caused a significant fiscal strain. Now our debt's four times the size. So although we only raised interest rates to, to, to 12%, which sounds huge um, now, um, we've, we're, we're now at 4%, but our debt is, is four times larger than it was in the 80s. So 4% interest rates today are the equivalent of about 16% interest rates in the 80s. And so the fiscal stress is really going to be quite painful. I really hope that you're right on the glass half full scenario. I know that everyone thinks that um, times are different. You know, I look at the divide in politics right now and uh, the idea of people coming together and working on this. You know, recently you could say some Republicans have thrown out some ideas for overhauling Social Security and, and Medicare. And what you see uh, from the Democratic side is, Republicans want to end Social Security or they want to take away your Social Security and Medicare. And like you said earlier, it's really easy for politicians that are currently in office to just ignore the problem and push it off and say that they're going to keep your benefits. And by the time everything does run out, that's going to be someone else's problem. And I, I wonder if what we really need is society to realize that this is a real problem, that these programs are unsustainable and that the debt on that the debt is unsustainable and that something actually has to be done about it. That's really what I'm hoping happens because if the society doesn't get behind that, then it's going to be really tough for the politicians to get behind it. And that's why they want to just ignore everything because the people, I guess, don't realize it yet. Uh, but I don't know. Do you, do you think that, do you think that any of the plans you've seen, have you paid attention to any of the plans for Social Security or Medicare, or what they're talking about doing to try and save those programs? Do any of those seem viable to you to keep these programs sustainable? I've not seen any legislation lately that that I think would 
would get the sort of bipartisan support that it would need to to see real change. But I think we're going to see an increasing number of legislative proposals coming coming through probably in in the early part of next year, particularly if we have a divided government. And, it, and it's they're really going to have to make an effort to to sort of make it appealing to both sides. One side is going to be very averse to making benefit cuts. The other side is going to be very averse to, to raising FICA taxes, for example. So they're going to have to really find a consensus somewhere in the middle that, that, that doesn't go too far either way. They're going to have to look at um, things like incre- uh, increasing the stringency of uh, Social Security disability insurance and uh, raising the retirement age by a margin, uh, changing the cost of living adjustment to a different type of uh, inflation measure that, that, that's slightly lower than, than, than the CPI they currently use. They can't keep giving 8.7% cost of living adjustment increases. It's just not sustainable. So small fixes like this will, 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 will add up to some progress, but it, 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 the difficult part is going to be getting that sort of bipartisan support legislation like this. I'm glad you mentioned raising the age and I and I know this is not really what we're talking about today but I'm I'm going through another piece I'm working on for an episode and they are talking about raising the age that's part of one of the plans and people get really upset about that. And I just want to make sure everyone realizes that when we got social security in uh, I believe 1935 or around that time um kicking in at 62 uh, that was above the average life expectancy for a human being at that time. It was never meant to be a retirement plan that you lived off of for 20 years, but that's mm-hmm. what it is now, basically. But that was never the point of the program. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Don't you wish life came with a user manual? I know I've needed that many times in the past, but unfortunately, we don't get that user manual. You just sort of left to figure it out on your own and hope you're making the best decisions. Maybe it's a career change, a relationship. Maybe you're a new parent. It's pretty easy to feel very stuck. Well, we don't have that user manual, but we do have BetterHelp. Therapists can help you figure out that whole stuck feeling, help you build better coping skills and work through your tough decisions. Now, I've done therapy before. In fact, some of the best life changes I've made came while I was talking to a therapist. It was tough at the time, and I know I didn't want to do it. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I am glad that I did it. It's not really about a therapist making your decisions for you, by the way. It's about becoming a healthier version of yourself so you can make the best decisions on your own. As I've mentioned before, our co-host, Charlie, is a consistent user of BetterHelp as well. He loves it, and I know BetterHelp is helping him make it through the tough times. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com gml. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gml exactly right and the other point is when the program was created there was something like 15 workers supporting every uh beneficiary who was support who was receiving social security benefits and so it was very sustainable now it's something like three workers supporting every social security uh recipient and it's it's forecast to go down closer to two over the over the coming decades so Every two workers will be supporting every retiree. It's just just not financially viable at this point. Do you think we've done a good enough job keeping the Fed 
separated from the government. What I worry about, I know that they're supposed to be separated. We know that they're not exactly. They they still they still do get appointed. Um, I worry about the political pressures as we talk about the interest rates going up. We talk about this debt problem that leads to us needing to cut spending, and we just end up uh, replacing the Fed chair with someone who wants to do. Uh, more uh, more spending, lower rates, negative rates, maybe something like that. Actually, a few far left-leaning politicians have, have thrown out things like that, that we need to get rid of Jerome Powell and uh, replace him with AOC or, or something like that. Um, do you think that you could see some more political headwinds pushing up against the Fed in the future? It is a risk, and it's something that I've written about in the past. Um, myself and one of my colleagues wrote a paper in March of this year where we talked about the risk of fiscal dominance. So uh, fiscal dominance, if you're familiar with it, is, is a scenario whereby the debt becomes so large that politicians start to put pressure on the central bank, in this case, the Federal Reserve, to keep interest rates low so that they can keep rolling over their debt and, and refinancing the debt at the lowest interest rates possible. Uh, the issue with fiscal dominance is once it sets in, which it tends to when, when the public debt gets so high as we're heading in that direction, um, is that when you have a situation, for example, like we have now with, with, with spikes in inflation and, and inflation that persists over many years, the Fed will be reluctant to react to that inflation. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why the Fed was so slow to react this time around, because they knew the debt burden was significant and there will be pressure from policymakers. I didn't see too much of that um, in terms of actual rhetoric coming from polit politicians, but it is something that becomes a risk as, as the debt becomes larger and larger. And the other thing you mentioned is, is, is quite right. Um, on, on this, I'm, I, I also try to be glass half full um, with the situation we have, and it's, and it's the sort of progressive goals that are, that are worming their way into the uh, monetary policy debate at the Jackson Hole um, symposiums every year. We're seeing more and more of these sort of progressive policy goals where they're saying that the, the goal of the Federal Reserve should be not just price stability and, and uh, low levels of unemployment, but should also be things like climate change goals and equity and, and, and diversity. And um, the, one of the positives, that I shouldn't say positive, but at least silver lining of the spike in inflation is that it's, it's refocused the central bank's um, attention to its primary goal, which is price stability. That should ultimately be the only goal of the Federal Reserve is, is, is stable prices, low and stable prices. And so I think that's, that's one silver lining of of the spike in inflation that we can, that we can speak to is that it's it's sort of crowded out those those more ridiculous goals those progressive goals of of, of utilizing the federal reserve's tools to pursue what are essentially uh, policy goals. Yeah, I think uh, I think Powell has done a good job pushing back on some of those uh, some of those wishes from people this year. You know, people have been upset because uh, they're going to need to get unemployment to come up. They look at those jolts numbers. They want the amount of uh, the open jobs that go down and and a lot of progressive politicians are complaining that they're trying to hurt the working people in order to fix this problem, which is, of course, just caused by corporate greed. If you just go down that uh, that entire line of thinking and uh, even in yesterday's speech, you know, he said that uh, the risk of not doing enough was uh, was worse than the risk of doing too much and that it was worse for people to deal with high and persistent inflation than it was for them to deal with a recession. He said that he didn't know if we did have a recession, how bad it would be, but that their main job 
in his quotes, their main job was price stability. And so he's been, he's been really, you know, this year I've liked him a lot. So, so far, you know, uh, maybe I think he should have done it sooner or he, he should be doing more or they should be doing more, but I've really liked them a lot. Um, one thing I wanted to, uh, ask you about was what do you think about this whole system? We're kind of getting out of, uh, out of this national review piece and, and the topic, but it, this whole fed system that we have libertarians went in the fed popular books called in the fed. Is that even a feasible scenario or should we just drop that topic? Altogether, that would be a great question for a monitoring policy economist. <laughs> I, I I tend to buy on the on the fiscal policy side of things. So my, my own personal take is is that I'm is that I'm typically quite critical of central banking policies most of the time. Um, I think I agree with you in in the sense that I like the power of 2022 far more than I liked the power of 2021. Um, so it, it's ebbs and flows for me. Um, I think a rules-based monetary policy system would be preferable to the current system we have now. Um, I know that some of my, some of my colleagues at, uh, are, are advancing a, a, a preferential rules-based system, something like NGDP targeting that might be more effective um, at, at, at keeping monetary policy at levels that, that tend to avoid flu large fluctuations in, in, in the price level. Um, but one of my big fears now in the coming years, uh, as it concerns monetary policy specifically, is I think that I I, I don't see us going back to two percent inflation trend as quickly as a lot of the uh, monetary policy economists think we will, or, or at least hope we will. And I think the risk there is that once we get down to three or four percent, then the new argument will be, well, why don't we move the target upwards? Why don't we target 3% inflation or 4% inflation? And I think that would be a really terrible policy mistake to make. And that's something that I think is going to be a risk in the not so distant future. Um, reason being, we've spent decades building confidence in the public for this 2% inflation target. And so people expect 2% inflation. Uh, that's, that's, typical of day-to-day of, of -day price level changes. And it's what, we've, it's what we've known for decades. And I think the risks there would be that we would unanchor inflation expectations. And if people said, well, if the Fed can move the, the, the target up to three or 4%, why not five? Why not six? Why not seven? And so there's a lack of trust. There's a breakdown of trust there. So um, sorry, that, that that's a much more long-winded answer to the question that you initially answered. But uh, as a fiscal policy and not a monetary, I, I tend to have different takes on yeah on the fed and its policies well I'll mix in i'll mix in the fiscal with this next one then because so uh on a side note um i also so i work with free to choose network free to choose milton friedman um uh, working on social media uh with them and so i spend a lot of my days combing through hours and hours of milton friedman videos and one thing i've heard several times is that inflation starts with the fed and that that is the cause I, I will say I've questioned that a little bit, and I want to get your thoughts, because the, the Fed did not decide to shut down the economy and spend trillions of extra dollars uh, to, uh, you know, to try and keep people afloat during that time. But they did react to it. They did, they did back up the ability to do that. And so when you, when you trace this back, a lot of libertarians like myself like to say, it's the Fed. That's the problem. But is that the case or did the Fed just react to the position that the government put them in? So my take on this, 
particularly as it speaks to, to the recent surge in inflation, is that the Fed is certainly a, a, a key player. The, the Fed plays its role in in this. Um, but I, I would argue that the inflation we're currently experiencing is primarily fiscal inflation. And what I mean by that is it's the, uh, the Fed is monetizing the debt, but the Fed is only monetizing these trillion dollars of debt because the Treasury is is borrowing this money. It's 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 unsustainable fiscal policy that is driving the Fed's monetization of debt and the mass creation, mass printing of money. Uh, they increased the money supply something like forty percent over a two-year period, which is 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 going to devalue the base currency. So there is a monetary aspect, but it's being driven ultimately by the the largest fiscal stimulus uh, set of fiscal stimulus packages that we've ever that we've ever seen. Um, we the government spent five trillion dollars on top of the the the, the 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 normal base levels of spending of five or six trillion dollars every year, and so it's 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 really fiscal driven inflation. And and there are actually a few studies that came out earlier this year. There was there was one by um, there was a Federal Reserve study. There was another IMF study, and they 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 tended to they tend to argue that of the five percent core inflation that we saw at the end of last year. At least three percent of that was driven by fiscal stimulus, so that's government spending. So that that would say that about sixty percent of the inflation we're experiencing, at least at that point, was driven by government spending and not not federal mon- monetary policy or, or or other factors. And there were other studies that, that similarly showed that at least half or more of the inflation we're experiencing is driven by fiscal policy and and, and fiscal stimulus. Now, I don't know if this is something that you talk on a lot, but what I keep hearing from econ- from people like Robert Reich or uh, several other people is that this is just pure corporate greed. That's all we're dealing with. It's not government spending. It's not even the Fed printing money. It's just because greedy people are greedy and taking advantage of their monopoly power. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that idea? I, To be honest, I don't even think those those economically flawed positions are even worth the response. I mean, there's, there is zero empirical evidence to suggest that, that the corporate profits have any causation with, 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 with inflation or with higher prices. It does present a pretty convenient boogeyman, though, to, to blame your bad policy ideas on, though, right? Of course. <laughs> you take the problem and you make it suit your solution rather than actually find the underlying causes. Yeah. I like I like that. You see, I should take that position more often instead of just fighting back against these really dumb tweets I see all the time. I should say this is not worth even responding to. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe I'm giving credence to them by even arguing with these uh, with these ideas. That could be part of the solution to the problem. You might be on to something right there. I like that. Uh, so so Jack, where the where the people go to keep up with with what you're doing. I think I've got some links and stuff I can put in the show notes, but where is it that you're most active and people can follow what you're doing? You can find all of my articles, my interviews, and also my Twitter handle, I believe. They're, they're all on my Young Voices bio page. So you just go to the Young Voices website and then you can you can find me on there under Jack Salmon. All right. Well, Jack, we uh, the people listening right now don't know this, but we put this together like 10 minutes before we actually started yes. <laughs> talking. So once again, I really appreciate you coming on with such short notice, and we hope to have you on again sometime. Thank you so much for having me on. I thoroughly enjoyed it.